Lady Macbeth's famous line. And I'm just going to also mention Lady Macbeth has to be one of the most fascinating female characters in literature. She has spawned all kinds of variations and iterations. Her famous line, out damned spot, now reads, out crimson spot. Again, the damned spot is damnation, literally. Yeah. The devil's coming for me. I don't believe she was in any way saying, my God, I can't get this spot out. Although that would make an excellent Sard's Wonder Soap ad, wouldn't it? Um, it would. My God, Lady why has no one thought of this? Lady Macbeth and the Rescue. <laughs> Good morning, everyone, and welcome to The Pleasure of the Text podcast, a shared imaginative space where readers and writers make meaning together. We are your hosts, Shannon and Gareth. Good morning, Shannon. How are you today? I'm good. I feel a lot better today. I've just overcome a pretty unwieldy uh, illness. I mean, I'm not, I don't need to go to hospital or anything, but I was just out and I am very good. Like you said, I juggle so many balls. I'm pretty organized. Everything just went kaplat and I was no longer a juggler. And now we're back into it and I'm excited to be talking about our topic today, which I wish I could say it in one word or, you know, less than 50 character title, but What are we talking about today, Gareth? We're talking about sensitivity readers, publishers, and a whole bunch of stuff. Well, yeah, we're we're, we're talking about literary censorship, really. Uh, And like last week, we talked about uh, book banning slash burning. And that's uh, that's one way to censor a book. Um, There are other ways, as it turns out. And we've been doing a deep dive with our research and becoming very alarmed and uh, tangled. But this will be our best attempt to put it all together, tie it up in a neat bow and, you know, see what happens. And um, we've got to learn to start doing this. If if you're enjoying these podcasts, please hit the like button and subscribe. And is there anything else you can do? Uh, You know, I don't know, maybe even go a bit old school, stick a a message in a bottle, you know, love your work, chuck it in the ocean. And and Shannon, who lives on an island, may find it washed up one day and she'll be like, this is clearly for me. And that'll be really lovely. So, yeah, like and subscribe. Uh, So, yeah, that's the housekeeping. Yeah. yeah, that's the housekeeping. We can make it a bit more interesting. So I don't know if any of the audience and yourself, Gareth, have gone to bookshops and they promote buying a book not by its cover. So it's a book covered in uh, brown paper and they just give a very quick description of what the book is about. So I picked up a book. If you can prove to us that you have liked and subscribed and shared to a number of your friends, we will gift you this book. Oh. <laughs> Wow. Why not? Oh, man, I'm really sad that I've already subscribed. Um, that sounds well, like a you've great got all plan. your friends in it. Yeah. I'm going I'm to let them I, know. I like it. The more that I've thought about it, yeah, let's do this. Might be able to, I might be yeah. able to get my parents onto uh, subscribing. That would be good. Um, so where are we going to begin? You'd first uh, have to get them onto YouTube, right? Yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely some levels to this. Um, so... <laughs> Were we thinking we were going to start with Roald Dahl? I think is that is that what we're thinking today? Because we need an entry point yeah, and an let's exit start. point. 
Yeah, we thought about this and we thought Roald Dahl would be a fantastic entry point for this. Um, and I'm sure a lot of our audience has heard, and if you haven't heard, uh, Roald Dahl, um, when did he die, Gareth? But anyway, he's a, an amazing it's author 94. and novelist. He's written 94, yeah, it wasn't too long ago. If I throw out the words Matilda, the big friendly giant, what else has he written? Um, oh, Charlie um, and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, what's the one with the fox? The fox one was always my favourite. Oh, the fantastic Mr. Fox. Mis- yeah. Yeah, that one. Uh, yes. Well, I've got I've got a canned so, history. If Should I read this canned history? It's one of the shorter yeah, things sure. I'll be reading today. Uh, this is from The Conversation. Uh, Puffin Books have worked with the consultancy Inclusive Minds, who say they help publishers, authors, and illustrators work towards authentic inclusion, accessibility, and diverse representation to revise some of the language used in Roald Dahl's books for children more than 100 years after his birth. Abridged versions of classic works aimed at children were routinely published in the 20th century, including Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, Louisa M. Alcott's Little Women, and books not originally written for children, such as Alexander Dumas' The Three Musketeers or Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. Enid Blyton's books have also been revised and updated for young modern audiences, including renaming some of the characters from the Fire Away Tree series. Like Dahl, Blyton was challenged by her editors and publishers during her career, with her publisher declining to publish one of her books in 1960 because of its xenophobia. Modernizing the language of the famous five series did not prove popular, and in 2016, publisher Hachette abandoned the revisions. This may eventually be the case with the revisions to Dahl's work, though in September 2021, it was announced that streaming giant Netflix had bought the Roald Dahl story company for a reported £500 million. Pounds. So, yeah, it's a lot wow. of, it's, that's a lot of pounds, isn't it? It might be worth mentioning too that uh, Ursula Le Guin, you know, uh, a bit of a hero uh, to me, her children's uh, books are being uh, given a sensitivity edit as well, um, or a co- collection of three. I can't remember what the, the collection's called. Um, I haven't read them. It's seven words across three books. That they're going to be changing? Yes. And her son was very involved in this. So basically the son uh, transferred the rights to the new publisher. The publisher came back and said, well, where we would like you to consider a few updates. Um, and obviously the son was aware of, of what's been going on with Roald Arms. Pretty, uh, pretty nervous. But it was seven words across three books. Even then they spent quite a bit of time puzzling out what Le Guin herself would have chosen to do. Um, and they decided to go with it after talking to a wide range of people uh, and getting very conflicting viewpoints, um, basically because above her desk she used to have on a, on a note, you know, is it useful, is it necessary? Um does it have some like value that. or does it at least not do any harm? And 
So the conclusion was because the changes were extremely minor and didn't uh, didn't change the the meaning of the books in any way. The son made the changes himself and really spent a long time finding words that felt like they had the same rhythm as the words replaced and the same meaning if you consider the changes in time. You can still argue uh, the merit of doing this at all, but um, I think a lot of thought and a lot of consultation went into those seven changes. Uh, And you're saying that did not happen in the Roald Dahl uh, edits? Well, I guess that's the question. I do have another article. Do you want me to jump into this one? Because I think... Yeah, sure. This is a long article, but I and I've cut it down, but I, I don't think there's a wasted word in what's left. This was written for Slate magazine by Imogen West Knights. Um, and it's entitled The BFG Isn't a BFD. Okay. So as it happens, I have spent quite a lot of time over the past decade reading Roald Dahl books with small children as part of a side hustle in tutoring English. Matilda, the BFG, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the Twits, all of them. All of these books have moments in them that are a little sticky for modern readers, and you can contextualize for children if you want to. I think from experience that even small children are capable of understanding something like, quote, in the past, more people thought it was okay to be rude about people who were different from them, but now we don't do that because it's upsetting, unfair, wrong, end quote. Dahl's books are full of material that needs a little explaining to kids, but perhaps more importantly here, the world's full of other children's books. I choose to read these to kids because I feel comfortable helping kids through them. It is not required. I mention all this, obviously, because of a new episode in a doomed and stupid enterprise of our times. Yet again, adults are getting angry online about children's books. It was announced earlier this week that the Roald Dahl Story Company, which controls the rights to the late author's books, worked in conjunction with Puffin, the book's publisher, and a collective who campaign to make children's literature more inclusive on what they call, quote, small and carefully considered, end quote, changes to the texts to ensure that Dahl's books, quote, continue to be enjoyed by all children today, end quote. These have apparently included changes to language regarding things like weight, mental health, gender, violent behavior, and race, and whole extra sentences added about topics such as why it's okay for women to wear wigs in The Witches. What's interesting about this unneeded controversy is that I haven't, I haven't so far seen anybody anywhere on the political spectrum who thinks this is a good idea. Loudmouths on the right think that it's woke cancel culture nonsense, and loudmouths on the left think it smacks of literary censorship. So why has this happened? Sometimes it's an obvious move to make small changes to a literary text to update it for modern audiences. Surely few would dispute, for example, that changing the name of Agatha Christie's and then there were none from what it used to be removed offensive language while preserving the value of the work. But what's happened here is more extensive and much less obvious in its merit. What Puffin has actually done in this case is a mess. For example, Augustus Gloop will be enormous rather than fat. This performs no sensitivity purpose because the character is fat. 
much of his strand of the plot revolves around this fact. And even taking the word fat out at all implies that fat is an insult in and of itself, rather than a descriptor of one possible body type. What has been achieved here? Now, I just want to interrupt myself with a, an annotation, if you like, a little note. In a video posted to her Bookish Realm YouTube channel, Ashley argued that some of the edits are actually pushing us backwards. They're erasing the word fat from a lot of his books, she said. For someone who is fat, who is reclaiming the use of the word fat, I don't think that fat is an offensive word for everyone. And it's not something that everyone who is fat feels like they should shy away from. Anyway, back to the, uh, because, you know, Shannon, I noticed this. I'm aware um, of fat community. And I thought to myself, when I saw this, what are they going to make of it? And I suspect not much. Uh, now, this whole thing also seems like a misunderstanding about what is appealing about the world of Roald Dahl in the first place. Or not, in fact, a misunderstanding, but something closer to a cynical attempt to sanitize the IP before Netflix gets their hands on it to pump out a load of new Dahl adaptations in the coming years. Changing specific phrases doesn't change the shape of these books themselves. They're nasty books, aren't they? Dahl was a nasty writer for adults though. as well. Yeah. His short stories are some of the most memorable and twisted things I've read. The Twits is about a husband and a wife torturing each other for fun. In Matilda, a little boy is forced to eat an entire chocolate cake until he is almost sick as a punishment. In George's Marvelous Medicine, George kills his grandmother by shrinking her out of existence. The nastiness is a feature, not a bug. And I think um, with uh, respect to that article, uh, I think that's a pretty strong argument. You know, I, I love Roald yeah. Dahl and Roald Dahl is, uh, you know, really nasty. I mean, that's isn't that not the appeal? Yeah, and that's why a lot of children loved his books. It was like this unfiltered view of the world of what they could potentially, you know, what they potentially could become and just engaging in that in an imagination, imaginative sense, I think allows children to grow and just have a better world view. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, and, and the idea of talking to kids when you're reading to them and having discussions, mm -hmm. I mean, that seems like an objectively wise thing to be able to do. Um, and, of course, yeah. if you don't think Roald Dahl is appropriate and you don't want, you know, your children reading his work, I, I mean, I assume parents have a, uh, you know, a, a sufficient amount of control that they could simply choose not to encourage it and that would be the end of the matter. Um, but I think it's it's, yeah. it's worth noting. And there was a couple of – I was going to say there was a couple of other edits that they uh, have been trying to get through. Do you mind if I mention those? No, I'd, I'd be pleased to hear them. Yeah, so you mentioned Augustus Gloop uh, became enormous instead of enormously fat. And then also in The Witches, women characters are now top scientists and business owners rather than a cashier in a supermarket. And tweets related to gender were made, so mothers and fathers were switched to family. 
ladies and gentlemen became folks and boys and girls became children. And then in James and the Giant Peach, gender neutral terms were adopted with cloud men becoming cloud people. So those are a couple of the edits that were were suggested. Most of those are kind of fairly innocuous. The one about the witches, though, really misunderstands the idea of writing for children by placing the witches in everyday settings that children may be able to access. Now, your average kid is not going to be able to pop into the top scientist's laboratory, but they can go to the supermarket and then they look at this person. Anyone over 20 looks like an old person to a kid. And they see them and they think, could that be a witch? And that's the magic of the thing. And to completely misunderstand that and feel that it is purely an attempt to pigeonhole women in demeaning work roles is it 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 does seem it makes you question um you know the reason behind this and also the fact that there is no way to have Roldal be pleasant. Roldal is not pleasant. Uh so you either like that or you don't. Um I think a similar thing is has been happening with the James Bond books. Uh and you can only do it in a selective way. And if that's the case, why are you doing it at all? Who are you going to privilege with these changes? And who are you going to Yeah, ignore? did you want to talk about the, the changes that were made or had they made the changes to the James Bond novels or are they just talking about it at this stage? I believe they're either out or they're um, – because certainly people have read them. I don't know if that's because they've given examples or not. I have to say it's not on my wish list, so I haven't been paying attention to publication dates. Um, this is a, this is from an article by Zoe Dubno, which I'll be talking about a, a bit later, but I'll just read the bit about Bond. So the argument for revising Dahl was to protect children, but it appears with Bond that adult fiction is also getting the sensitivity treatment. Fleming's estate decided to remove material that could be considered offensive, but news reports paint a strange picture of what was deemed acceptable. Uh, Now, in Bond, a visit to a strip club has been deleted, but 007 still muses that all women secretly, quote, love semi-rape, end quote. And Bond is excited by the sweet tang of rape. Fleming's many uses of the N-word are gone, but Bond alludes to Koreans as, quote, rather lower than apes, end quote. Now, who is Bond but a misogynistic relic of imperial decline, Dubno writes, and why should he and Fleming escape our judgment? Perhaps it is possible to make a lethal spy woke. After all, the CIA made a recruitment video calling on intersectional people to enlist. So I think, you know, the... The uh, the point about Bond being a misogynistic relic of imperial decline is well taken. Um, mm-hmm. And the inconsistencies of the edits is also a good point. What I think the author is missing, though, is that this is not a new phenomenon. When in 1953, when Casino Royale came out, The reaction to Bond was mixed and he was seen as a 
disturbed and atypical person at the time. Um, yeah. I've got, I've got another couple of interesting quotes about this. These come from Wikipedia uh, because my understanding has always been that James Bond is not meant to be a character that you like, but that in a sense almost frightens you. And you'll see in other stuff, because I've read all the, the James Bond novels, um, and at the end of Moonraker, for example, which doesn't feature any kind of disco outfits, um, at the at the end of Moonraker, the book, Bond has fallen for his uh, for his female lead, um, and he he wants to run away with her and give it all up. And she sees how ill he is. She's attracted to him, but he's not the marrying type. Uh, she doesn't want to end up with this guy, um, and so she yeah. says no. And this is a this is a repeated theme in the book bond wants to be a more romantic more well-balanced person but he's he's not okay he was never okay this is the point and he is a symbolic representation of imperial decline you got to remember it was only a few years earlier uh that the british moved out of india uh the british empire was and is continuing to collapse and I think James Bond is a representation of that. <clears throat> Fleming wanted the most boring name he could think of because he wasn't trying to create a glamorous figure. Uh, and he thought James Bond was an extraordinarily dull name. Uh, so, yeah, so basically um, this, is, this is from Wikipedia and uh, really I couldn't find anything better anywhere else. According to academic Jeremy Black, Bond is written as a complex character, even though he was also often the voice of Fleming's prejudices. Throughout Fleming's books, Bond expresses racist, sexist, and homophobic attitudes. In response to a reviewer's criticism of Bond as villainous, Fleming said in a 1964 Playboy interview, so this is 1964, that he did not consider his character to be particularly evil or good. Quote, I don't think that he is necessarily a good guy or a bad guy. Who is? He's got his vices and very few perceptible virtues, except patriotism and courage, which are probably not virtues anyway. But I didn't intend for him to be a particularly likable person, end quote. Fleming agreed with some critics' characterization of Bond as an unthinking killer, but expressed that he was a product of his time. Quote, James Bond is a healthy, violent, non-cerebral man in his middle 30s and a creature of his era. I wouldn't say he's particularly typical of our times, but he's certainly of the times. And again, I think mm. he's referring to that sort of collapse of, of British imperialism. Another general attitude and prejudice of Fleming's that Bond gives voice to includes his approach to homosexuality. While Fleming had a number of gay friends, including Noel Coward and his own editor, William Plomer, he said that his books were written for warm-blooded heterosexuals, quote, his attitude went further with Bond opining that homosexuals were, quote, a herd of unhappy sexual misfits, barren and full of frustrations, women wanting to dominate and the men to be nannied, adding that he was sorry for them, but he had no time for them. So, 
you can see that whilst there is some overlap with Fleming the man and Bond the character, they are not the same person. And he wrote Bond as a broken character. I think that the films would have gone down that route except for the fact that Sean Connery was so tremendously suave that, in a sense, it just went off in this other direction. But you can see the conflict in the first two films they made. Uh, Bond is very cynical. He, uh, He shoots a man in cold blood. He is really morally ambivalent. And then we hit Goldfinger and we get the car with the gadgets. And it was such a big hit. And thereafter, the books and the films diverge dramatically. And the misogyny you see in the films is played for laughs. And uh, it's, it's a very different thing to the books, which I think are actually a lot more thoughtful. So, again, wokeifying Bond would be to basically change the character from what it is, which is a portrait of a misogynist, uh, an unhappy, bureaucratic murderer. And that's what he is, and that's what he always was. So it's, again, the, the project here, how can you fix James Bond novels so that James Bond seems like a hero of our times when he wasn't even a hero in 1953. Yeah, and it's like the Dal example. Yeah, because that character is embedded within the story. He is the story and it's he's a relic of his time. And to kind of edit that out, I can't even imagine how you would do it. And, you know, I think you're going to talk about this as well. You know, there is that economic concern Instead of rewriting the Bond character, why don't we publish a character like James Bond of our time who is awesome or who is also not a good character of the time? Like why do we have to continuously rewrite and re-edit these classics? Exactly. And, I mean, you know, there's uh, the smart money is on Idris Elba taking over the role of, of James Bond. And there's been, um, you know, a lot of angst about this. Um, but to be honest with you, if you look at something like Luther, um, if they and, and they typically have done this, they see in actors previous roles, like Roger Moore played the played Bond as though he was still playing the saint. They kind of see what works for an actor, and then they try and push it in. Um, so you know, Idris Elba actually makes a lot of sense to me as as that version of James Bond. Um, but they, they, it won't work if they make the character noble. He's just not a noble character. And if people don't want to see films with this ignoble brute, um, then just don't see them and they won't make any money and they'll stop making them. Uh, it's, it's that simple. And then they'll write a new script and make a new movie that appeals to the audience. Exactly. Uh, you know, there's, but, but it really, it's, it's kind of crazy. It's like saying, let's take Sherlock Holmes and make him an idiot, uh, which has been done in a comedy. Uh, and for comedic purposes, I mean, it didn't work, but for comedic purposes, the idea seems like a good one. But yeah, basically these exercises, whatever you think of them, whether you think they're well-meaning or not, they're not going to be successful for these reasons. 
So then the question is, why is it being done at all? And you had a thought on why it was being done, especially for Darlin, um, the Fleming novels. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think though this kind of drags us back. We need to go. We need to go back in time uh, to talk about yeah. Shakespeare. Uh, now, I assume, depending on which side of this argument you're on, the idea of editing Shakespeare will either thrill or dismay you. Uh, it'll please you to note, though, that it's already been done. The word uh, Baudelarizing um, it, uh, refers to Thomas Baudelaire, uh, who was a physician and philanthropist, um, and he censored Shakespeare. Uh, and that's where the word Baudelaire comes from. So basically, in 1807, Baudelaire published uh, his first edition of what became known as The Family Shakespeare, uh, four small volumes containing 24 edited versions of Shakespeare's 37 plays. Now, his reason for doing this is that he, well, actually, you know what? I'll quote him. In his own words, the family Shakespeare was a Shakespeare edition in which nothing is added to the original text, but those words and expressions are omitted, which cannot with propriety be read aloud in a family, end quote. Now, so for example, uh, in Hamlet, Ophelia does not commit suicide. Uh, there's instead, she accidentally drowns. Now you may wonder whether that is just a word being changed or meaning being changed. In Macbeth, my favorite Shakespearean play, Lady Macbeth's famous line, and I'm just going to also mention Lady Macbeth has to be one of the most fascinating uh, female characters in literature. She has spawned all kinds of variations and iterations. Um, just wanted to make that point. Uh she, her famous line, out damned spot, now reads, out crimson spot. I, again, the damned spot is damnation, literally, you know. Yeah. The devil's coming for me. Um, I don't believe she was in any way saying, my God, I can't get this spot out. Although that would make an excellent Sard's Wonder Soap ad, wouldn't it? Um, it would. My God, Lady why has no one thought of this? Sards and the rescue. <laughs> wait, wait, I just want to pause me. you here. Do we have the original text before Shakespeare got bowed Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. cool, cool, cool. Now you may can continue. Um, and, and just a final one, in Henry the Fourth, Part 2, uh, Dole Tearsheet, a prostitute, is omitted from the story entirely. So there's two things, I guess. Baudelaire doesn't do what he, what he set out to do. He does change the meaning of the plays and he removes whole characters. There's, the, you know, um, the idea that he's not adding things uh, is, is incorrect. In, in fact, just the act of taking something away can add another meaning. Um, but in his defense... His, his reason for doing it was very successful. The family Shakespeare was incredibly popular uh, at the time, 
and did open Shakespeare up to women and children who would not otherwise have been uh, allowed, essentially, to read it. And I think allowed that's worth. By who? Well, the men in the family, their own sense of propriety. Uh, you know, it just wasn't. Okay. It, it was not safe for work, sort of stuff. So, you know, okay. whilst it's fun to laugh at Baudelaire, in this exercise, he did help to popularize Shakespeare at a time when that probably has extended Shakespeare's longevity in certain ways. Um, mm. So, you know, I mean, I guess I'm saying that because. Uh, people can probably already guess that I'm not into Baudelaireizing, but uh, it would be dishonest to suggest that it has never been successful. It has. Yeah. So that was 1807. And then there was a journal called the English Review. And I found that in researching this podcast, uh, there was a lot of white noise. I think you found that too, Shannon. It was really hard to get differing opinions on a lot of these uh, concepts and ideas that were coming up um, and a lot of nonsense as well. So, yeah, I agree with you. It was very hard to kind of come to a conclusion sometimes. Yeah, I found that. I was jumping around all over the place and I was also going into weird esoteric spaces, including the English Review from 1916. Um, now, this was an extremely long piece in the English Review. I've cut it down to three quotes, and I apologize to anyone who's sick of the sound of my voice already. I know I am. This, no, uh, I know it's, it's scandalous, isn't it? Um, this is a piece written by Richard Whiting, uh, and he called it Bodler Bodlerized. So, quote, the luck of the bookstalls threw a copy of Baudelaire's family Shakespeare in my hands the other day at the very moment they were celebrating another centenary of his victim. In the far-off times of good Victoria, he undertook, as we know, to fix up the bard for the use of the young person by cutting out all the naughty words. I had never read him. I had only read of him, and I suspect that many who still find his name handy as an active verb are in the same case. Here was my chance. I netted him at the low price of one shilling in a fourth and, I think, final edition of over 900 pages, illustrated, gilt-edged, and published by Longmans in 1872. So, fourth edition. Um, and in, so he did make changes all the way along. And um, I'm, if I'm not mistaken... He, uh, he died in 1825, so some of these editions must have been taken up by others, possibly his sisters. Um, in so any the case, mission of continued editing and censoring was taken up by his family? Yeah, they started editing and censoring his stuff. Um, now, Whiting <laughs> continues later on. Uh, so actually, I should say, Whiting spends much of the article just ripping the pants off Baudelaire. And it is, it is actually very funny. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. I didn't think it was worth sharing here because there's so much to get through. Um, but then he, he sort of starts to get to his point. And Whiting writes, no doubt he had a purpose of a kind if he had not taken so much care to forget it. He does not want the children to encounter the facts of life in their literature. 
But since these facts are to be faced, what alternative has he to offer? None. It is not enough to shield the young from danger. You must teach them how to meet it. So, mm. I mean, what do, you, what, do you, what do you think? Quote. Isn't it? 107 years ago. Yeah. Richard Whiting could have, you know, spoken through the times to our current age and made that very good point. So what we've got so far is that Baudelaire had an excellent commercial effect in that he he kept people buying copies of Shakespeare. And potentially you would imagine that some of the people who read it loved it and maybe went on to the unedited versions later in life. But perhaps many wouldn't have. And regardless, the the key point is that there was a commercial benefit. But from a societal point of view, he was taking away an opportunity for younger people to experience difficult ideas, prejudices, uh, and, and let's face it, I mean, there's a lot of racism in Shakespeare. Uh, he didn't take any of that yeah. out because that wasn't offensive to him. Uh, you know, so again, it's baked in. You know, you can take out the yeah, word prick, have... you know, but it's not going <laughs> to. And it's damn. Not, Yeah, it's not going to get you anywhere, is it? Um, mm. I do want to follow up on the point of allowing children to face these concepts and dangers in literature. And before we jumped on today, we were talking about uh, the role of censorship and book banning. And one of the books that I read when I was younger, which under the current um, circumstances and what's happening in the world, especially in publishing, would not be available. And that was Lolita by Nabokov. I read that when I was either between the ages of 12 to 14. I can't remember exactly. So one could argue that my brain could have potentially have been damaged by the concepts brought up in this book, but I think the opposite was true because by reading this book in a safe environment on my couch, you know, if I got disturbed, I can go talk to mum and dad, whatever. I engaged with the character of Humbert Humbert, falling in love with Lolita. And this is an amazing book because you become complicit in what's happening. And at the time, at the first half of the book, until you kind of see everything fall apart in their engagement, I thought it was okay. I'm like, does it really matter that this guy really loves this girl? Because it seems to be harmless and she likes him back. That's what I thought. And then towards the end, everything collapses and you realize how much this has impacted her and how she views love and sex and all that. And I got to engage with those concepts and empathize with both characters in this book and imagine it and be a part of it and it was so current I don't know what the word but enlightening as a young reader to have engaged with those concepts um and I think that oh I'm getting off topic here but books and literature is a fantastic way for kids minds to grow and understand these ideas um and I'm going to go on a completely different uh, concept as well. I had a mate over here this morning and he was talking about this concept of Buddhism. And what I'm currently not seeing, but it would be great if we did see. So Buddhists have an idea that you can climb a mountain in two ways. You can come up this side through compassion 
and you can come up the side through wisdom. So they're both, you know, opposite sides. But if you get to the at the top, it becomes the same and you converge. So if you have become super compassionate, in the end, you learn wisdom through that. And if you are super wisdomful, have a lot of wisdom, through that you see compassionately. <laughs> Look at me making up words. And um, I think books allow you to get to that point for all ages is what I'm trying to get at here. Yes, I agree. And, I mean, it is a very – well, it's a relatively safe space to deal with difficult things. Uh, you know, Lord of the Flies. I don't know if we mentioned that last week as one of our banned we books. It was banned. Um, and that was because the feeling was that it presented children with a version of themselves that was less than human. It does that. What other book do you know does that? And what an opportunity for children to see in themselves and the way they conduct themselves in the playground, this heightened, disturbing version of what they do and bullying and that kind of, uh, you know, uh, the strong survives kind of attitude. Um, the idea of taking that away from them, I think, is immoral. I, I don't understand it at all. It serves really no useful function if a child reads lord of the flies and it makes them want to be cruel it might be time to crack out the psychologists that book makes cruelty seem terrible uh you know i mean one might argue that cruelty is objectively terrible but it just like a child's cruelty it makes it so visceral it's an extraordinary piece of work. And yeah, I mean, banning it just seems like a really counterintuitive thing to do when you're trying to teach kids about these sorts of ideas. Um, yeah. Now there was- I never read Lord of the Flies, but I've watched the movie. And as a kid, I was in high school and I reckon I was 14 again. Those lessons from that movie, incredibly powerful, so moving. Um, and to imagine being in a world where I didn't get a chance to see that, maybe I would have become an animal. Who knows? Well, I know that it affected me deeply as a kid, and I'm very glad, you know, some nitwit didn't steal it from me as a, as a life experience because that would have been very sad. I just want to finish what uh, Whiting has to say about Baudelaire because this is the big one. This is how he uh, he ends the article. And I think you'll hear the uh, the echoes through time. <clears throat> Talking of Baudelaire, he says, quote, his last effort was a sheer impertinence, a Baudelarization of Gibbon, quote, with the careful omission of all passages of an irreligious or immoral tendency, end quote. The careful omission of all passages of an irreligious or immoral tendency. Whiting goes on to say, an extension of Baudelaire's fatuous enterprise from modes of expression to modes of thought. I haven't finished the quote, but I really, I think this is the key thing. So with the, with the Le Guin, uh, the changes were the very contemporary sort of changes, <clears throat> removing words like dumb um, because of their, um, well, 
they're sort of uh polysemy you know they, they they have more than one meaning it it is one of those meanings is uh well, in fact both meanings are not particularly flattering and and so in a in a sense um a shift maybe more in keeping with what Le Guin senior imagined for the work so modes of expression to modes of thought now you see in Dahl that they go from modes of expression to modes of thought. Um, I don't know if the witches are meant to be Jewish, for example. When I read the witches, I didn't understand them in the, on, on those terms. The, um, the sort of Eastern European cod accent, I imagined being sort of more like what you would think around Dracula. I wouldn't have interpreted yeah. it as a Yiddish accent, which is, which is the claim against it. Um, there's no question that uh, that Dahl was an anti-Semite, but are the witches an expression of that? They wear wigs, yes, but I, I always had the impression that they're in disguise. You know, they're working these jobs. They're, so that and the idea of being balding and horrendous, you know, uh, for me, that's that's the reading I take out of it to this day. And I'm not sure how children will find the anti-Semitism in the idea of the witches. I think it's being shoehorned in there, uh, which seems a bit, again, counterintuitive. Uh, going back to Whiting, so we've moved from modes of expression to modes of thought, quote, he'd been nibbling at this, as we have seen, all through the Shakespeare on a principle of after settling up with the indecencies, take a turn at the morals. This, logically carried out, would lead to nothing less than a rewriting of all the masterpieces of literature, from the point of view of every coxcomb with a doctrine of his own. Pursued to its inevitable end, it would necessitate the addition of a staff of experts in all the ologies to every select library in the kingdom. They would begin to censor for opinion, as they now censor only for taste, and we should have an index expurgatorius that would dwarf the achievements of Rome. So, yeah, you know, we were talking about visiting the census library. What fun we would have. Yeah, I remember. In the, uh, the modern publishing census library. Uh did you say census library or senseless library? No, <laughs> one either one. Either one. <laughs> Don't you love a, 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 yeah. a staff of experts in all the ologies? Um, in all the ologies. Uh, Whiting, you know, had, had a bit of foresight, didn't he? I don't think he imagined mm. it would ever happen. But arguably it's beginning to. Yeah, and so he wrote this in 1964. No, no, he wrote this in 1916. Uh, oh, my God. 107 wow. years ago, he saw that this was a, you know, this had been a misstep from from Baudelaire. Um, yeah. And, yeah, he, he essentially raises the spectre of the modern sensitivity reader, uh, you know, a staff of experts yeah. to stop us. Uh, you know, thinking the wrong things, not just saying the wrong things or using the wrong words, but having the wrong thoughts and the wrong ideas. 
Uh, and you know, yeah, that's problematic because ideas in and of themselves are not wrong. Not in, not in the first instance, they have to be tested against other ideas, you know, objective empirical evidence. Uh, and then you come up with some sort of contextual conclusion. So yeah, Baudelaire. What do you think about these sensitivity uh, readers? Have you got some stuff to, got any ins- insights you want to share? I, I've got a couple of things that I want to bring up about sensitivity readers and it kind of comes from three different sources. So bear with me, Gareth and everyone. I'm just going to try and, like you said, put this up in a bow. Um, so Roald Dahl, you know, his, his work has just gone through a bout of edits with sensitivity readers. Uh, I think it was Inclusive Minds, the department that we're working with to make it more appealing to the younger audiences. But the edited versions that have been released, at, there's a text at the bottom of the copyright page that explains the changes. And this is what it says. Words matter. The wonderful words of Roald Dahl can transport you to different words and introduce you to the most marvellous characters. This book was written many years ago and so we regularly review the language to ensure that it can continue to be enjoyed by all today. Yeah, sounds reasonable. Mm. And it's interesting because I want to compare this to a very similar statement. Um, do You have heard about Pen America, right, Gareth? Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah. I don't actually have a deep understanding of Pen America. I know that the, their focus is on protecting free speech. Um, do they have any pati- p- particular political alignments? Uh, this is an American institution, obviously, Pen America, yeah. It is American and they don't have any political alignments. So they talk about censorship happening all over the space for LGBT. BTQ plus for people of color. And they also talk about censorship for someone like Salman Rushdie and all those people. So it just seems to be general literature that they're concerned about. I haven't noticed any political leanings in what I've read, but again, uh, going into the research on this was a bit hairy. So if there is, just let me know audience, but I haven't noticed anything in that way. Like if there's been any leanings, but um, so after so we've talked about Salman Rushdie attack in August. So recently after that, PEN America had a symposium celebrating 100 years of defending free expression and the power of the written word. And uh, through a discussion called Words on Fire, Writing, Freedom and the Future. So it brought authors together. So Chimamanda Adichie, Margaret Atwood, Jennifer Finney Boylan and Dave Eggers to the stage at the New York Historical Society on September the 12th, along with Penn America CEO Suzanne Nozzle and President Ayad Akhtar, the novelist and playwright, and with many other distinguished authors in the audience. Adichie told the audience her response to the assault was to reread Rushdie's words, and this is what she had to say. She said rereading Rushdie's work was not only an act of defiant support, but an act of meaning. It was important for me to remind myself how much words matter, how much books matter, and how much stories matter. Quoting Rushdie, she said, what is freedom of expression? Without the freedom to offend, it ceases to exist. And just a bit more on that before I go to my next point that I want to make. 
Adichie talked about a different kind of silencing and the value of disagreement as a profound and important aspect of free speech that must be protected. Quote, It has always troubled me how quickly people are fired for something they have said, not because I like or support what they say, I often don't, but because it is a silencing that leads to a larger kind of silencing. So when we first open up, we talked about uh, there's different types of censoring. There's, and they're both forms of silencing. So you've got book bans, you know, completely remove the book, and then you've got edits, and now we've kind of moving to this realm of sensitivity readers. And the CEO of Pet America got to Twitter uh, regarding the changes to Roald Dahl's books, and I'm going to read a couple of the tweets that she's posted. At Pen America, we are alarmed at news of hundreds of changes to venerated works by Roald Dahl in a purported effort to scrub the books of that which might offend someone. Admits fierce battles against book bans and strictures on what can be taught and read, selective editing to make works of literature conform to particular sensibilities could represent a dangerous new weapon. Those who might share specific edits to Dahl's work should consider how the power to rewrite books might be used in the hands of those who do not share their values and sensibilities. We understand the impulse to want to ensure that great works of children's literature do not alienate kids or foster stereotypes. In some cases, including Dr. Seuss books, beloved works have been withdrawn entirely out of concern for causing offence a regrettable outcome that is rarely, if ever, justified. The problem with taking license to re-edit classic works is that there is no limiting principle. You start out wanting to replace a word here and a word there and end up inserting entirely new ideas, as has been done to Dahl's work. Literature is meant to be surprising and provocative. That's because of its potency. By setting out to remove any reference that might cause offence, you dilute the power of storytelling. Better than playing around with these texts is to offer introductory context that prepares people for what they are about to read and helps them understand the setting in which it was written. If an editor, publisher or estate believes they must go beyond that, readers should be put on notice about what changes have been made and those wishing to read the work in its original form should have that opportunity. Changes should be kept. Actually, I'm going to stop here. This is probably the only comment that I don't necessarily agree with. So far, she's been on point every time. And I don't know if you're familiar with Twitter. You can only write so many characters. So these are all separate um, comments that she's made. It might be worth mentioning. Changes should be kept. Oh, sorry. It might yeah. be worth mentioning as well that uh, Puffin has responded to the controversy by saying they will print the original texts as well as Roald Dahl classics. Uh, now, so that that's good. Um, what I wonder about, though, are they going to go all the way back to the original original texts because Dahl did agree to some small changes uh, in uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, for example. And if Mm, the publishers were pygmies, right? That's correct. Yes. He changed their skin from, uh, from dark to orange. Um, Now I just, 
note there's a contradiction in all this. If the publisher has been constantly updating the work, why has this not been a problem before? They've released it innumerable times, repackaging and repackaging it. Um, or is the truth, and I think you'll find it is the truth, that they have not done this before, except I think it was in the early 70s when they approached Dahl himself and said, this is an issue, we would like you to agree to a change, and he made the change. Um, because, yeah, basically, you know, what version would the classic version be if they've been constantly updating it? Are they going to go all the way back or are they going to use the 14th edition, the 230th edition? Because they have boxed up this guy a thousand times, you know, for money, for finding new ways to present the work and squeeze every last dollar out of it. And I think it is worth noting this. Uh, you know, I don't think that the Puffin have been tremendously sincere in, in, in what they've been doing. But having said all of that, there will be Roald Dahl classics as well. And I suspect it'll be interesting. We'll watch the space because it'll be interesting to see which one sells the most copies. I know which one I'm going to buy, but hey. <laughs> I've bought them before. I'm not buying them again. No way, Puffin. No way. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, so the comment that she's made which I kind of disagree with, and it's related to um, sensitivity readers, is changes should be kept as surgical as possible with expert input to uphold the integrity and authenticity of the original work. So much of literature could be construed as offensive to someone based on race, gender, religion, age, socioeconomic status, or myriad other factors. Such portrayals are vital topics for discussion and debate leading to new insights. If we start down the path of trying to correct for perceived slights instead of allowing readers to receive and react to books as written, we risk distorting the work of great authors and clouding the essential lens that literature offers on society. So Susan Nozzle, CEO of America, Pen America. Now, the comment, it was 10 or 13 Changes should be kept as surgical as possible with expert input to uphold the integrity and authenticity of the original work. Now, who are these experts? Currently, we're thinking they're the sensitivity readers, or that's the argument at least, isn't it, Gareth? Well, actually, I don't know who that, because they're talking about the authenticity of the, of the original work. So it's actually talking about keeping it in line with what was intended, and I, I don't see how you could possibly do that. Um, I don't actually know who she's talking about. Uh, maybe, I mean, family members, uh, but why would they? No, I, I find that a perplexing argument. It doesn't make sense to me at all. And whilst listening to this, it must be said, um, you know, it's like I'm not I'm not happy with any any of this so far. It's it's not working for me. All this notion of the censorship. Um, but when talking about having difficult ideas to engage with, it's probably worth remembering that they won't necessarily be equally difficult for all people. And, uh, you know, there's a sort of a, there's a color blindness in that argument. 
for starters. Um, and you know, I, I'm trying my best to be aware of my own blindnesses and I'm sure our, our listeners and viewers will see that I've failed miserably. Please, you know, comment below and explain how. Um, I'm reminded of a quote. I actually sent it to you this morning. It's, it's one that's been with me for a while. Um, and I don't want to misrepresent it. So let me just pull it up. Uh, Stephen Jay Gould, um, a historian, he wrote, I am somehow less interested in the weight and convolutions of Einstein's brain than in the near certainty that people of equal talent have lived and died in cotton fields and sweatshops. So I guess the reason why I, I mention that is because whilst I don't think these works should be edited, I think that, you know, clearly there is a, an imbalance and inequality in the representation of voices. We're going to talk about this later, but I feel like it's worth mentioning it now because there does feel like there's a degree of tone deafness in some of the defenses against censorship. I, I strongly agree that these works should not be edited at all. I think that they should be given an introduction, uh, to, to sort of address issues and perhaps have some footnotes even or annotations in, in certain spots. Um, but I also think it is worth acknowledging that a lot of the defenses of, you know, of Dahl's work, are coming from people who are, in a sense, uh, speaking from from positions of, of a certain degree of power, um, and it's just worth you know noting that for a child today, with in terms of our publishing industry, there are far, far, far more white voices, like an extraordinary and disproportionate amount. So you know. In terms of who's getting challenged, I don't think it's a level playing field. And whilst I don't think censoring the books is an answer to that, I do think it should be acknowledged. Um, and so I have. What do you think about that? I mean, yeah, you're right. And it's something that has been brought up in many occasions uh, there was a letter that was sent to Harper's Magazine by a number of big authors, a letter on justice and open debate, and there was a response to that letter saying, you know, it goes, this conversation goes beyond books getting censored and it goes to who holds the power, who has the power to have their voices heard that you mentioned the, uh, the response to the Harper's letter and it was called a more specific letter on justice and open debate signed by a greater number of um, people in the media and uh, academics and so forth. And it makes some really good points, but it also makes the point that the people who wrote the Harper's letter, many of them are in a sense questionable because they are in positions of power. And that in and of itself is not a good argument. Uh, you know, if they're speaking from authority, which is a particular kind of argument, then sure, 
Sure, but simply having a degree of power or authority in your life shouldn't mean that you can't speak on social issues. That's it's quite quite a mad proposition. You've just brought up a fantastic point. Really, ideas should be challenged, not people should be challenged. And I think that's where a lot of these uh, disagreements are happening. You're attacking someone for a whole very like various reasons but go go to their ideas like if you are so certain on your own ideas have a intellectual discourse about it don't attack someone for being in a position of privilege or being in a marginalized position like it just doesn't make sense and you know i I can't imagine why any of us would want to shut down debate but but apparently we do i um i feel very strongly about this though so i was mentioning zoe uh zoe dubno who uh, wrote a piece in The Guardian. And her piece is called Publishers Are Cynically Using Sensitivity Readers to Protect Their Bottom Lines. Uh, so you can see where this is going. And, uh, you know, I'll start off from the get go and saying I think uh, Dubno makes very good points here. Um, it is really problematic that we are talking about sensitivity readers making changes to books because they're not. Uh, at least not directly. Um, they're hired yeah. by a publisher to perform a service, uh, which is a recommendation-based service. The publisher then decides what will be changed. Um, so if people are angry, they should be angry at the publisher. I would think that's a reasonable thing. Like you don't blame the employee. But this um, this article is interesting because it gave me a real sense of what it is to be a sensitivity reader and some of the problems of the whole concept of the role. The news that many of Roald Dahl's books have been edited by the publisher Puffin to excise offensive references to gender and race has unleashed a brouhaha among the literary establishment, anti-woke crusaders, and just about everyone else. Though the current furor is about reprints, sensitivity reading has become popular with new books as well. When I first reported on sensitivity readers in 2001, the phenomenon was still relatively unknown. Since then, coverage has exploded. Most of the discussion revolves around the sensationalist prospect of woke censorship stripping art of nuance, but far less attention has been paid to the readers who bet these books. The Dahl edits were facilitated by an outside firm, Inclusive Minds, that bills itself as a network of experts by experience. Readers tend to work freelance, and most of them are under 30. In 2021, I interviewed a freelance sensitivity reader who gave me a glimpse of the industry's workings. This reader, who was mixed race and non-binary, was paid... 0.009 cents per word to check that books content fit with the reality of their lived experience. Mm. Uh, 0.009 cents per word. This compensation was impossible to live on, meaning they were trading on their otherness for a precarious foothold in publishing. Meanwhile, 
This reader found it incredibly difficult when employed as an assistant at a major publishing firm to actually address the racial elephant in the room. They were the darkest person there, they told me, but their outlook on race was not a welcome addition. What the rise in sensitivity readers suggests is a publishing industry imperiled by its own homogeneity. Much in the way corporate culture has adopted diversity officers so that execs can adjust staffs just enough to cancel-proof themselves without having to materially change their businesses, sensitivity readers offer a quick fix for an industry whose big four houses, um, it should be big five, but anyway, big five houses, yeah. uh, according to a, a 2019 study, are made of 85% white editors and 89% white authors. Uh, she concludes, Dubno concludes, uh, it's a long conclusion, but still, as a fiction writer myself, I actually have a different problem with sensitivity readers. Authors have always sent drafts to friends for feedback, but hedging the impact of your writing by the use of paid sensitivity readers seems like yet another instance of the confused financialization of art. Authors need to take responsibility for their work. Why, for the low price of a fraction of a cent per word, should we be allowed to outsource our capacity for understanding of the world? If authors are so desperate to depict characters dissimilar to themselves, shouldn't we have met people similar to those characters? And if we haven't, shouldn't we do research or at least have people to call on to ask if what we're writing is inaccurate or offensive? My novel, Dubno writes, would only cost a couple of hundred dollars to get the official stamp of approval of a sensitivity reader. That price sounds too cheap for a clear conscience. Now, I agree with that wholeheartedly. She's a great writer. She's a very, very good writer. I think so. And yeah, I mean, what of it? Like if you're, I don't think there's anything offensive about someone wanting to write about another culture, and even from the perspective of a person from a different cultural background. I see no problem with any of this, but I agree with Dubno. If it's that interesting to them, they need to have done the research. Maybe go there. Make some friends from that place. What are, what are you interested in exactly if, if you've done none of this? What, are, you know, what, what is the point of this? Uh, and I think such people, you know, are a bit foolish. I mean, you know, if you, like I was saying to you, you know, if you write a book about Japan and you don't really know anything about Japan and you don't know any Japanese people and you're not interested in the history, the various aspects of Japanese culture, what the hell are you writing about? So, and that's what the sensitivity reader in a sense implies that it is acceptable to write a book out of deep ignorance. Now, there's nothing offensive about that. It's just foolish. Like, why would anyone want to read it? Uh, and, and and this is, uh, I mean, it's kind of perplexing to me. And I think sensitivity readers are a scapegoat in all this because publishers clearly are struggling with diversity uh, in, in terms of both mm. their writers, their their staff, and the readers they're attempting to engage um, and I think that sensitivity readers are a, a tick box band-aid solution. And I think the people who are being used as sensitivity readers, and I, I use the word used deliberately, are uh, being exploited for their otherness. And I, I, I don't get offended much. And I, you know, 
I'll read anything. But I find that concept deeply offensive. I, I think it's it's very unjust, and people are so angry at sensitivity readers, and they are not the problem here. So given the lack of pay, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, sensitivity readers may be freelancers that these publishing industries are just shooting out a message and they're like, hey, you're a match for match of this character slash author. Let's put you guys together. Just say a few things, sign this to say you're the sensitivity reader and let's go on to publish. Right. And there's no guarantee. So if you feel that a sensitivity read hasn't done the job, there's no sort of accountability in this. Like sensitivity readers can give quite detailed feedback in in spite of their low pay. Uh, From what I've read, they can put an enormous amount of effort into their reads. And the idea that all sensitivity readers are reactionary and deeply woke and uh, simply in it for political points is is a caricature. There There are certainly many sensitivity readers who are trying to improve the fiction that they're working with because they believe in the fiction. So they will give very detailed feedback and find that either very little of it or none of it is used. And yet the publisher can still say, we used a sensitivity reader. And from that person's point of view, I would think that is very difficult. Um, I don't know if the sensitivity reader is listed amongst the other editorial staff. Sometimes publishers do that. Um, But, you know, you can end up basically being the face of a book that appears to not have had a sensitivity read and and you're getting paid nothing. And and really the lack of diversity is not around this made-up position. Even the concept that you could um, really represent an entire group in in the views of a single person is deeply reductive to to all people who exist in minority spaces. It's, uh, it's, It's quite an offensive concept. And not nearly good enough, I think. So the the diversity problem, which is not being addressed by sensitivity readers, the uh, the diversity baseline survey that was done in 2019 that people mention, it was done by Lee and Low Books. It's called Diversity in Publishing 2019. Now, I believe this was done in a purely American context. Uh, and so that's worth noting. I'm just going to show you this. On these, on these pie charts, we've got uh, four metrics. We've got race, gender, orientation, and disability. In race, we have 76% white. Gender, 74% cis woman. Orientation, 81% straight. And disability, 89% non-disabled. Um and, you know, obviously I come from a disability background and it's probably worth noting that uh, the cohort of people who identify as, as living with disability is very large. So that that is also not a good number. Um, so it suggests there's a massive diversity issue. And uh, I suppose the first question is, you know, why why do we care? Why, why do we need diversity in publishing at all? I, I think it is a good question. And I think the bottom line is, for me as a reader, I want diversity in publishing so I get the opportunity and the privilege to read books 
uh, that are diverse and cover a whole bunch of diverse experiences. And I think that when the publishing industry is not diverse, it's presenting like a an imbalanced gate keeper ship around the types of books that we get access to. Yeah, I mean, fiction's an imaginative space. This is going to come up later. But if it is anything, if you can define fiction as anything, it's an imaginative space. And clearly, yeah. for for people, you know, in minorities and otherwise, there is a restriction of imaginative spaces. I don't get to see as many kind of, uh, I guess, yeah, you'd call them minority spaces. Um, uh, you know, but also, uh, you know, people of color, uh, different sexual orientation and so forth. Um, they're not seeing different imaginative spaces either. They're seeing one that may not reflect their lived experience. Um, but the value of that wears down over time when it's really in some ways a very homogenous otherness. So basically, let's take it as a given that if we want literature, we want fiction to survive as a thing when there's all this new media, all these new ideas coming through, we need to preserve the thing about it that is powerful, which is the way it engages the imagination, unlike any other form of communication in human experience. It's incredibly vital. And so, yeah, I am 100 thousand percent on board the diversity train for that reason it's not a political thing for me it's about the future of fiction uh and i yeah i really think anyone who thinks diversity doesn't matter is is essentially saying that the future of fiction is irrelevant to them too i think that's a really good point to end on there i mean this is a huge topic and so gareth and i have decided to make this part one and we're going to be uh, releasing part two so we've just talked about the publishing needing to be diverse because the future of fiction depends on it. In part two, we're going to go off with that statement and then continue on this discussion. Thank you for joining us, everyone, and we'll see you next time on part two. See you, folks. 